0: And here you come to find yourself listening to In the Corner back by the wood pile. And you kick your feet up and you're feeling good. You're feeling good.
1: I'm Spung Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. Quantity versus quality, aesthetic versus practical, man versus machine, these are just some of the sides folks have had to choose since the Industrial Revolution. Even back during George Washington's first term, Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton was advocating for the newly formed federal government to jumpstart a European-style Industrial Revolution here in the States. He arguing that farmers would gain more income and comforts if their wives and daughters were put to work in manufacturing. On the other side of that, Thomas Jefferson wrote, quote, "...corruption of morals in the mass of cultivators is a phenomenon which no age or nation has furnished an example. It is the mark set on those who, not looking up to heaven, to their own soil and industry, as does the farmer, for their substance, depend for it on the casualties and caprice of customers." John J. Thompson has a lot to say on the subject, especially when we apply modern consumerism to our religion. So much so, he wrote a book called Jesus, Bread, Chocolate, and Coffee, Crafting a Handmade Faith in a Mass-Market World. So using some of the themes in his book, John and I let them lead us into a discussion about both actual products and their metaphysical counterparts.
0: Breaking bread with my mama, breaking bread with my papa, breaking bread. Breaking bread
1: with my mama, breaking bread with my mama, breaking bread. So, I want to start this by saying, had you not been my friend, I never would have read this book. (laughs) 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 And I say that because the things that you list in the title, with the exception of Jesus, I, I am quite passionate about him, but chocolate, bread. What was the other
0: Jesus, Bread, and Chocolate were the three that made the final. Yeah, uh, but of course... there's was, a long list that were contenders for the title. Right. <laughs> right.
1: I think beer should probably be in there because it's a big part of the book. But, yeah. you know, I like all those things, but I'm not really passionate about them, you know. But I am passionate about other things, so I, I appreciate that. And I, I liken it a little bit to how... I have a, a friend who's been on here before, Cat Taylor. Uh, and he's a wrestler, professional wrestler. And he's very passionate about professional wrestling. And I just think it's, like, one of the dumbest things in the world. But... Mm. I love him, and I love it when he tells stories about it. And so, you know, as a friend, you know, I'm happy to see other people happy. Let's put it that way, even though I have a hard time maybe relating to some of it. So right. so having disclaimed a little bit of that, one thing that I appreciate in the book is that, it's one thing I've learned in my old age, is that sometimes I get distracted by the thing I thought I was going after. Uh, I realize that's not what I was going after. And I feel like, yes, you're passionate about these subjects of, like, authentic bread, beer and coffee and some other things. But it's the people, the people that right. make them. And the journey also, you know, the pursuit. Uh, that That's really where the gold is in it for me.
0: I totally agree. I think, the irony is that... I don't even eat very much bread. I eat very, very, very little bread.
1: Okay, well, you would never get that from the book. (laughs) Right.
0: Well, I I don't remember. You know, when you're working on a book, it's Uh kind of like working on a record. You don't sometimes remember which songs made the cut and which songs didn't. or which I wrote a lot of stuff that didn't make the final cut of the book. But just the way my body works, I've had to work really hard to get in shape. Mm -hmm. And bread is not something that I can eat a lot of. And when I do eat bread, it has to be whole grain extra grainy stuff and i have to eat a very small amount of it so i loved it because it was the conversation you remember that the whole bread chapter was really about my friend john coming to my house Mm -hmm. and a conversation around that thing uh, that precipitated a lot of what the book ended up becoming but bread serves as a metaphor and an entryway into a conversation. I don't really eat very much Mm -hmm. bread. I actually don't drink very much coffee now because I've been, I got terrible migraines this year. And one of the things that the doctors thought would be smart is if I radically cut down or eliminate caffeine. Mm -hmm. It's like, I just poured myself a half a cup of this coffee and I won't even drink all of that. I mostly have decaf coffee, Mm -hmm. which most people think is, sacrilegious. And at one point I've said that, but I roast my own coffee at home and I even roast decaf coffee and my decaf coffee is better than most people's regular coffee. But still, um, I've been able to detox from caffeine Mm -hmm. dependence this year. So, and I don't drink very much beer also for health reasons, just, you know, trying to, I've lost a lot of weight this year and I'm trying to stay healthy. So it's not so much about those things. I don't eat very much chocolate, but the chocolate I am going to eat, I want it to be really, really great. But absolutely, if someone was to approach it and think that I wrote the book because I was super passionate about those things, they would totally miss the point.
1: And maybe from a more profane look, this is one thing I realized when I was working um, actually just a couple blocks from here at Lockheed Martin that my ex-wife and I realized that the people that were outside smoking cigarettes they actually knew each other because every day, even though it's something I don't care for, cigarettes, it was the, uh, the catalyst for conversation. It was the, the way that they got to know each other. They were having communion in a way, not in a, maybe in a Christian sense, but they were communing with each other, sure. whereas we went and worked and, and raced back to our car you know, to go home. So I think, again, with all those things that you've mentioned, any interest really, you, know, you end up having communion with people.
0: Yeah, I have a friend who was trying to tell me that cigars were good for your health, and he had all these reports that were showing, you know, and I said, maybe it's the fact that cigars cause you to stop and slow down because you, you don't do it while you're doing something else. Maybe the relaxation is what's corresponding with something, but I doubt that the actual tobacco and smoke is good for your health. If you could do... The relaxing part the stopping and the sitting and the without the tobacco and the smoke you probably could have the same corresponding benefit because i don't think there's any reports out there that are going to show that that any amount of smoke is actually healthy but there are sometimes corollaries mm-hmm. where this thing might be harmful but it brings another kind of benefit bourbon or wine or there's all kinds of things that on one level might be risky or harmful and then but that what we're doing at the time that we're doing it has another unrelated benefit and so sometimes we get ourselves in trouble if we're looking at the benefit from this side and ignoring the the harm on this mm. side that's gonna be kind of foolish but but we're also kind of ignorant if we're only looking at the risks and not seeing like motorcycles I, I don't have one now but I did and I really enjoyed the community aspect of all the guys at my church in Chicago that we'd go for these rides together and it was something that got me out of the routine of work and it was, got outside and did something together. And is there a risk associated with it? Absolutely, um, it, but there's also a reward and mm-hmm. life is a series of risks and rewards and-
1: Yeah, to go back to that report, I think I know what that guy's talking about because I did work in a cigar shop for a while and uh, there was a Surgeon General report actually that cigar smokers and pipe smokers lived on average two years longer than people that didn't smoke anything. Now, cigarette smokers, they definitely had a shorter lifespan. And the conclusion was, uh, because heart disease at the time this report came out was the biggest killer in the United States. And heart disease generally is caused by stress Mm -hmm. and poor um, diet and all that. But cigar smokers and pie smokers, like you say, they stop. They sit, chills them out, and there, I guess that was the connection, but right. yeah. but yeah. So what was the impetus to write a book? Just I Because mean, that's a lot of work, and uh, <laughs> you did a heck of a lot of research, you can tell from the book. So what possessed you to take on this task?
0: Well, it was a bunch of different things that fell in line for that to happen when it did. And, it, and I can look back and see a 10-year arc that culminated in the book, but as the individual chapters were unfolding in my life, I didn't anticipate that they would ever become that book. If, if I was gonna write another book after Raised by Wolves, I always assumed it would have been another music related book because that's all I tend to do is stuff about music. In fact, I've got other books in development that are music related, but this thing was, it felt like a departure and in other ways, it's really not. It's very much what my life had become focused on. Again, if you dig past the surface, Jesus Bread Chocolate, well, Oh, the working title was Bread, Coffee, Chocolate, Beer, Jesus Music, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> you know, and that was, a, I knew that would never work as a title, but you got to have something to, um, but that was because beyond my career in the music business, which had for 10 years almost been at Capital which was EMI before that. It was gone from being an independent guy, you know, with True Tunes and that whole side of my career to then Cornerstone Festival, which is also very indie and very fringy and being self-employed and just doing random things, you know, um, to then working at the biggest music company in the world. But at the same time, very much focused on small group ministry in my home. And so I pastored at this church in Chicago that was an inner city uh, urban church, very involved with people who were salt of the earth kind of folks. And it was very community driven. And the end of True Tunes and that aspect of my life caused me to push deeper into people. And this was all connected to my own damage, my own hurt. Uh, um, some of the artifice I had built around myself and my own persona and the, the persona building habits that I have uh, that I had in spades, and I still have, we all do. But when that first catastrophe happened in my life when I was about 27, and, and that identity I built had just been destroyed, it caused me, fortunately, I was surrounded by this small ragtag group of people in Aurora, Illinois, who just, like white blood cells, kind of bonded to me to protect me and love on me. And that authenticity, that real experience of care, was so important and so life-giving that it became the kind of thing where I could never go back to kind of standard American church experience again, after having experienced that type of experience or expression of the body of Christ.
1: To all you folks don't speak I'll tell you what these few words mean.
0: Boulibou, cafe mon ami. They mean what you like, some coffee. And do you who speak the
1: Brancis, mon ami. Something you just said, plus I think back to my own life. I hate that sometimes I am this way, but sometimes my identity may be a reaction to something else. Hmm. So I, I feel like when I was growing up,
0: we're at a music school, so sometimes in the yeah. background you're going to hear opera singers. Okay. <laughs> I hope the guy's okay. <laughs> yeah.
1: Growing up in you know, rural Indiana, you're surrounded by rust and organic and all that kind of yeah. stuff. So, as a, especially as a teenager, you you want the slick. You want the you love going to the shopping mall in the city because right. it's so different. Air now, conditioning. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Heck yeah. I mean, especially in the 80s, you know the, 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 you know, the very perfect music, like synthesizer music and the TV shows that were about someplace else, you know. But then later on, when I ended up working for the state of Tennessee and you work in kind of a slick environment, I found myself reacting and going the other direction, like started going fishing more. And it seems like I'm always going back and forth, back and forth. Do you see that in your own life? Oh, yeah. Okay.
0: Absolutely. Same, same exact thing. Now, growing up in central Illinois and that farmland, it's funny, you know, I would tell people I grew up on a farm, but our farm was, uh, it was not a functioning farm. It was like a shell of a farm. It had an old barn on it and one steer that we called babe. It was a, a useless animal that we fed. And I don't know why until it finally died. And do you eat it at least? No, it froze to death. Oh man. Um, it was it was a totally useless animal. It would get out every so often we'd have to track it around and then drag it back and put it in its pen. Poor guy. Um, it was such a waste.
1: I bring this up because you bring up the Industrial Revolution and Modernity. My approach, especially as I got older and hopefully more wiser, is that there's I don't want to say a middle way, like the Buddhists would say, but I would say like Everything has to kind of be in harmony. Just like Ecclesiastes says, there's a place and time for everything, you know. Right. So I feel like most things are probably amoral for the most part. Maybe crack cocaine is not. But, you know, <laughs> beyond that, food, sex, music, money, industry, innovation, it, it all could be good. Right. And it all could be awful and terrible. Right. Right. So... I feel like in your book, you're probably less of a fan of the industrial revolution than I am, maybe so to speak, or maybe you see it more of an evil. Am
0: I mishearing you? Well, I think what I tried to say eventually towards the end, I'm a big fan of paved roads and the <laughs> FDA and you know um, the flu inoculations. and there's, But, but I feel like that kind of, I don't feel like I need to give as many pages to all the benefits of technology and, and mm-hmm. all that because it's sort of obvious. And if someone feels like, I needed to, I'm sorry, you know, I, I feel like the fact I wrote the book on a computer and all, I, I have a website, it's like, come on, I, like, I'm wearing normal clothes, I'm not an Amish person or something mm-hmm. like that. But this is just part of that. The pendulum in, in my life has been so overly pegged into the repercussions of industrialism that in order to dislodge it, especially from the way that has impacted the, the formation of values. In order to dislodge that, I have to do some work, some kind of self analysis and some community analysis. And so that was really the, the point was to say, okay, what are some things that I, where are some echoes and some hints that I'm finding, the uh, examples of places in which industrialism and the values of industrialism have caused the essence of certain things to be lost or at least dented profoundly so that if we were to push backwards on that continuum, we might rediscover some of those essences. Mm -hmm. The point being not primarily about those things, chocolate, bread, coffee, although it's fun to find a better cup of coffee and some better chocolate and some better bread. That's great. That makes life more enjoyable. But each of those things is connected to a different value, an underlying value that I have found in my life. When I work to push that pendulum or that continuum backwards, there's a value I can also in my own life, my relationships, my community, rediscover. Something that may have been lost because just that continuum of modernization and and industrialism has has automated things so much that, that I've lost the essence of something. So... It's not to say that all aspects of this are terrible, but it is to say that sometimes we lose the essence of the underlying thing, or we we automate something so profoundly that we lose the actual essence of the thing. And when we lose the essence of a relationship, what do we have left? We have something that looks like a marriage, but is it really a marriage? It looks like a friendship. I mean, look at Facebook. So... We have 2,000, 3,000 people that I'm connected to on Facebook and we're friends. They even call it friends. But if I'm never actually in the same place as this person, if I'm never actually having a conversation, if I don't really laugh with them, cry with them, eat with them, none of the things that historically throughout thousands and thousands of years people have called friendship, we've reduced it down to pixels and likes and thumbs up and thumbs downs and emojis and all this kind of stuff. We have a facsimile of friendship and we can pile those up and have thousands of friendship facsimiles. Mm-hmm. And then we might even say, it's a reasonable facsimile of friendship, mm-hmm. but is that really friendship? And at, at some point, do we trade a thousand facsimiles and end up with no actual friends, mm-hmm. no real friends? Now, does that mean I'm not on Facebook? No, I am, and there, it, ha- it has a usefulness. It is a tool that I will use, and I've found it to be very useful for certain things. And I'm glad to stay in touch with certain people in that way. But heaven forbid I go so far into that world that I stop connecting with people in a real way.
1: Maybe next time Zuckerberg's over at my house, I'll ask him to change the word friend to acquaintance. <laughs> Just, <laughs> right. Something. That might be more accurate. Contacts. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah.
0: um, they, they should invent a, a totally different word. It would be like calling... You know, naked women you've seen in pornography, uh, former relationships.
1: <laughs> you know, well, for some people, that may be true. <laughs> well, you know what I'm saying? It's I like, know what you mean. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? It's just, yeah. it's
0: not, that's not true. There are lots I, I of. I think people. Ginger loves me. She <laughs> <'Cause you, you laughs> yeah, get to know yeah, me. Right, right. Right, right. <laughs> but even, I mean, that's part of the postmodern deconstruction of, right. of our society. It's like words lose their meaning. In our case, when we talk about, the, for some of us, our faith is so central to us, so important to us, but have we Facebooked our faith? Are we at risk of completely losing the plot of what the gospel is because we've allowed it to be automated and packaged? And in my life, having moved my priority spiritually into a small thing, what I can do in my home with real people, this is over the last 11 years. That was really the, the spark that started all these conversations, as you can probably tell from right now. All it takes is someone to just bring something up and I just start gushing. And it could be about anything. You could start talking about that old amplifier right there and I could do the same thing. Because I'm passionate about pushing backwards on the devolution of relationships, whether it be with people or with God to get back to the essence of what it is. Not that I'm claiming to always be the arbiter of what that essence is. I'm a fellow pilgrim trying to get back to the Holy Land in that way, but, but I've had enough experiences of that authenticity, whether it's back to the 90s when, when I had that sort of epiphany or back to my childhood with the church that I grew up in and I really do bent, um, lean on a lot of that experience in a positive way or it's right now with the people that I'm doing church with in my home. I feel like I've got something to say to people who feel like they're detaching from what is called Christianity. They're detaching from what they might want to call religion. Um, Saying, yeah, maybe that's reasonable. Maybe that's like someone saying, I'm eating too much bread and it's making me sick. I'm like, maybe you are, but let's talk about what bread is supposed to be. And let's talk about, maybe there's a truth in there, but let's not give up on God. Let's not give up on the actual relationship. Maybe there's just, maybe you Facebooked this thing. Mm-hmm. Jesus okay. is my friend on Facebook. Right.
1: Love is just a plea. Deepest point of need. We take reasonable facsimile. Reasonable facsimile. Reasonable facsimile. Reasonable facsimile. A lot of people have been hurt by Christians and are seeking other avenues outside of what we would define as traditionally structured churches to fill that need to learn or to belong. Some are repulsed by the politics, the music, the theology, or any number of imperfections or perceived imperfections. I myself sometimes feel like although modern churches are bringing in great numbers of folks into their doors, they often speak in terms I don't understand or relate to, and thus feel like I'm being dishonest if I go through all the motions when I actually am leaving pretty empty. Of course, I realize some could accuse me of making church all about me, but I'm just trying to not bear false witness, so to speak. I find nourishment in individual Christian friends, family, helping others when I'm not being so self-absorbed, books, podcasts, and so on. I asked what John thought of all this.
0: You know, I think that the church, as it's described in the Bible by Christ, is his body on earth. You know, we are the body of Christ. There's these crazy, mysterious proclamations that are just bizarre. We're his hands and feet, we're his body. Like we're the ones doing the stuff that he wants done in the world right now. Um, I believe that in a bizarre, mystical, fantastic, confusing, frustrating way. So I'm a big believer in the church. But just like I believe the human body is exploited, you know, by humans, and we can't blame technology. I mean, it's been done f- long before whatever. I think we, as soon as yeah, Jesus
1: was gone. I mean, or and even before. Yeah.
0: But I think there is a a design for that, and there's an intent that God has for that. And then there's all the ways that we miss the mark on that. And then there's grace. You know, there's the fact that even though we screw it up somehow God continues to work through Mm. screw-ups.
1: Oh, yeah. And I was going to say, I I need to add to all this, like, I I don't look down on all these people. I I actually am a little bit jealous because I don't understand and I kind of want to be a part of it. And I see that they're doing enormous good. They're feeding more people than I am, collectively.
0: So I I feel that, I I just wanted to start by saying I'm a big believer in it. Now, how that manifests itself is the question. Mm. And I do think that One of the repercussions of the Industrial Revolution is the consumerist mindset that we have, that essentially we have come up in a perfect storm kind of scenario where our identity as a result of growing up in this culture is that our primary role is to be consumers, that we are groomed from cradle to grave to consume, not to produce. And that's relatively recent you know that if you were to look i i think sociologically over the grand scheme of things most of human history people are taught to go make something mm-hmm. you know and a handful of people are designed to sit and think about stuff but most people are designed to go make stuff and now only a handful of people make anything and the rest of us consume things and when we think about stuff it's what other people are doing and we're watching tv you know so we're we're vicariously experiencing things we're not doing anything
1: yeah if if We're made in the image of God and God is a creator. We're supposed to be creating something. Creating
0: something. And we're frustrated when we don't. We end up having a a vicarious experience. I think that's one of the reasons all these TV shows about home improvement and building houses are Mm -hmm. like, because we're supposed to be building stuff and we're not. Mm -hmm. So we scratch that itch by watching other people build stuff, Mm -hmm. by watching other people solve problems. We watch other people live their lives on reality shows. We watch, we spectate, because it gives us this feeling that something happened when nothing actually happened. We become spectators and consumers. Our job is to go make enough money to buy stuff. Mm-hmm. And, we, and then our government and our society tells us we should probably be buying a little bit more than we can afford, so we always stay in a little bit more debt than we need mm-hmm. because our economy depends on it. So that consumer-driven thing defines everything, including how we approach faith. Now. I'm not pushing that back on you based on what you said. I'm just saying I think categorically most of us look at what do we get out of church. Mm -hmm. So when we go, and even the terminology we use for church, although I don't think it was originated that way, churches provided services to the community originally. Mm. So mass was a service. Baptism was a service. Weddings were services. Burials were services. But now I think it's more like a grocery store or a community. We go there. The tithe or the offerings we give is, is how, what we pay. Mm-hmm. And we expect to get a motivational speech, some entertaining music, <laughs> an entertaining program for our kids. Right. Uh, it's like there's a, a suite of products that the church sells us in exchange for our tithe. Mm-hmm. And as long as that value exchange is satisfactory and we're getting all the boxes checked, then we keep consuming the, the product. And um, I want to
1: add to that too, because I, I didn't represent everything all that well. But, like, for example, these people that I meet with, a lot of times we're talking about, like, so and so having a problem or somebody has a need. Like, what are we going to do about it? Right. You know, it ends up being our focus. To me, it feels, and I don't, I hate to sound like a snob, but to me, it feels real. It feels like, yeah. oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm at a loss for words, but. But that's I, what the early church was. I, I feel less fake. How yeah. about that? There you go.
0: And that's And that's what I'm getting at is that that we become, as a society, especially in a Christendom-based society, where the church is not persecuted, where the church is essentially very comfortable, uh, it's financially very rich. Uh, Christians kind of drive the culture in a lot of ways, though they want to think that they're persecuted by it every year when they start whining about a war on Christmas or something mm-hmm. kind of like that. Basically, Christians run the table in this culture. But if you look back at what the church was in the first few hundred years, it was an unpopular minority and at times very persecuted minority who gathered together and early writings from outsiders who were investigating it said what they did was they read and studied the scripture they sang songs together they ate food together they had a communion meal a, a special sacred meal together mm-hmm. they prayed together it's pretty simple what they did and they did this all the time in each other's homes mm-hmm. So it sounds like what you're talking about, what we're doing is basically saying, let's get a group together, not a random, chaotic, we're just going to hang out sometimes, but we have some structure to it. We say, let's make sure we're doing these things. Let's Mm -hmm. have communion. Let's sing songs. Let's pray with each other. Let's study the word. Let's, you know, let's do these things. And so in our case, we actually have a church that's, small enough to fit in our house, you know, and I'm not saying that's the only way to do it. I'm just saying that right. that's what we're doing. But we also still are peripherally involved with a larger church in town. Our son goes to youth group there and my wife goes to the women's ministry stuff there. And sometimes we'll go to events there and we even give them money sometimes. And we appreciate they do missions work and they do bigger things than we can do as a small group. So I'm not saying that there's no purpose for that larger thing. I'm just saying that in our life, in my personal experience, that's not the focus. That's not the most important part. The most important thing is the family. And I'm not saying just the nuclear family. I'm saying the family of people that come together, the 15, Mm -hmm. 20 people that that I'm able to help shepherd and Mm -hmm. lead and speak into in my home. That's the priority. And then a circle out from that, might be where the larger churches mm-hmm. is in our life. There's a wordless moon that's watching tonight. There's a garden
1: that's left to grow wild. There's a sound with no name when a faraway train cries
0: like an unloved child.
1: I wanted to ask you some difficult questions. There's always going to be naysayers your passion for the the things that you've talked about, the the non Jesus things, so to speak, it requires a lot of time and you know, dedication and and money, as you've mentioned. I could see, like, the minimalist Christians, maybe the Christians have taken vows of poverty, and on the other side, you know, the Marxist materialists saying, Why are you wasting all that time yeah. and money when you could have been serving the poor or, or whatever, which sounds a whole lot like you know, when the disciples yep. had got on to Mary putting ointment on the.
0: I sure don't want my craft brewing to be compared with uh, holy oil being poured on Jesus' head. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I meant. But even when I went
1: to the school that we're sitting at, I remember there was a church that was being built, a new church, and and somebody on the on the left side of things, they made a big stink about it, like because the school is so close to the projects, you know, how could you build that knowing that all these folks over there are struggling, you know. So what do you say to that?
0: Well, I mean, rhetorically, I would say I totally agree. And in my own life, it all has to be in a balance. So there's very real risk uh, when you dislodge the uh, the pendulum again from the far extreme of overconsumption of cheap junk into the craft side of things. There's a very real risk of just trading one kind of consumerism for another kind and almost deifying high class crafty stuff. Uh, And I see that now even more than when I started the book because my own neighborhood in East Nashville, which used to be where all of the blue collar working class musicians could afford to live when we moved there and now nobody could afford to live there. It's gentrified to the point where house values are through the roof and fancy restaurants that I can barely afford to eat at are popping up everywhere.
1: But those are craft restaurants. I mean, they're, they're following that ethos.
0: They're following all of the stuff I talk about, you know, <laughs> local sourced food and all of that stuff. It's great. But it's also serving a higher income. That My new neighbors, who are wealthy people, uh, want to eat at these places and they can afford to spend 100 bucks on dinner. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely a very real risk. And I hope that there's balance where someone can say, For instance, with the chocolate thing, it's like, okay, an Olive and Sinclair chocolate bar costs $7. A Hershey's bar costs $1. The quality, there's no comparison in my book. But there's also the slavery question, the justice question. You know, the $7 chocolate bar didn't involve slaves and the $1 one did. So,
1: Now, when you say slavery, what do you mean? I mean that
0: eighty percent or so of commercial chocolate in the world is the only way they can get it that cheaply is to use slaves in the production of the chocolate. So, but Alvin Sinclair doesn't, so they pay more for their cacao. So, so the same thing can be said for sneakers and T-shirts and everything else. It's like you want stuff cheap. You want to say, well, I'm not. I'm going to just get everything cheap, and I'm going to give. money over here. We shouldn't be spending money on this mm-hmm. stuff. Well, part of cheap is usually exploiting somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So sometimes those questions about, we shouldn't spend this money here. We should just do this cheap thing. You you might be exploiting somebody somewhere else and you just aren't zoomed out far enough to see. But then somebody might say, well, don't let's just skip chocolate altogether and have a very ascetic kind of attitude towards it. That's fine as well. And that's where I say, well, one of these Olivet the Sinclair bars, I don't always even have one. It might be a special... And one little piece of it might be all you get.
1: Goes a long way. you
0: know. And sometimes you can't afford that. And that you have to have the discernment and the wisdom to know when there's just... When you reorient your priorities this way around people first and people being the body of Christ and, and your values and the way you deal with debt and the way you deal with money all of a sudden it's like even craft beer or whatever, there's certain things just aren't important. So if you don't have it in your house, you don't have it, if you can't live in that neighborhood and you gotta live over here, if you can't, like that's okay, that stuff's not critical. If somebody has gotten to where they have to have that thing, then I would say that it's become an idol to them and the pendulum has just moved too far onto that side.
1: Just like taking a vow of minimalism and poverty could be an, be idol. an idol
0: as well, because yeah. they're they're basically reflecting on their own character and strength and integrity, and they're saying, "Look how good I am." Mm-hmm. Even if they never, even if they never tell anybody else, they could do this completely privately. But if they're doing it to feel holy, and they're and they're relying on their own holiness instead of God's grace, it could be a problem as well. Who drank my beer while I was in the rear? Someone took over while I wasn't here. Such cheapness calls for action, I'm demanding satisfaction. Who drank my beer while I was in the rear?
1: I get a sense from the book that you're not trying to take away people's choices. Is that true? (laughs)
0: Well, I'm trying to offer more choices because I think a lot of people don't know that there are right. choices. Okay. They just never went to that option. They didn't know that those things were there.
1: Right. Because like zealotry. It exists everywhere, you know, and I and I have to confess, like, when I was uh, younger and kind of fell into some, you know, fundamentalist Christians, I became that zealot that did not bring anybody to Jesus. In fact, I, you know, pushed them away, I'm sure. And I have a few friends that, that listen, and they know who, who they are, and I, I'm thankful they're still friends with me in spite of that terrible phase I went through. But... And I, I can relate it to... I have a lot of friends that are environmentalists or you know they're into the health, food, and all that kind of stuff. And they push me away from it. It's not that they want to make the choice for themselves. They want to make it for everyone else. They want legislation, They you know, these kind right. of things. So as someone who's passionate about these things, and I, I feel like the one thing we, we're definitely the same on is music. We're very passionate about this music that's so good, and, and people will not give it a, a fair shake. Even if you, like, lock them down, they won't admit it. So how do... You evangelize about these things that you're passionate about, about quality and communion and, of course, Jesus, uh, without pushing people away. What's your recipe for that?
0: Oh, man. If I had a recipe, you know, it'd be like the Toll House cookie thing. I'd be a, you know, make a fortune. But the thing is, I've been doing this and trying to do this yeah. since I was a kid. I mean, mm-hmm. that's what True Teens was all about, right? right? But one thing I found is there are some times you can do it on, at some sort of scale. Like you can luck out. You can come up with a great brand. You can find a tribe. And, and the key is to, to focus in on one thing at a time, to not try and be super broad to just say I'm trying to deliver this one message, this one about this one thing, and to try to find the people. My grandpa used to say, I'm gonna put up the flag and see who salutes. Mm-hmm. You know, it's basically try to find, you know, separate the people by that. Um, so so that's possible. It's exhausting, it's frustrating, but it's definitely possible. And I'm in the middle of trying to do that now again with True Tunes. I'm in the very beginning phases of trying to revamp this thing for the streaming age and try to re a tribe of people online basically, but eventually I'd like to gather them in a place physically, uh, but to find people who will follow a blog, listen to a podcast, follow playlists on Spotify, to listen to music that matters. I call it music from a deeper well. So it's not Christian music necessarily. It's just music that's coming from a more resonant, deeper spiritual place.
1: And you want them to contribute as well. Like, hey, I found this band. Yeah, Yeah, I
0: want to do what I did with True Tunes back in the day, but in this new environment. But it's going to take a long time to get back up to that place. But the way that I know it works is the most frustrating way. And the way nobody wants to do it is the same way I know church works. But it's not the way people want to do it. And that's one person at a time in relationships. Everybody wants to think of a system they can do that will have big results. And that doesn't work nearly as well as, here's my record player, here's a record, here's my office, come hang out with me. Just like we did it when we were kids. Come over to my house after school, let's listen to records. Mm -hmm. That's how it worked. And we skip over that and we want to do everything virtually. We want to hit a thousand people instead of one person. And so whether we're talking about God and deep spiritual matters and praying with people and helping them overcome whatever obstacles they have uh, to getting back to God. Or we're talking about music. Or or I'm trying to turn them on to coffee. That's great. Like That's why I've got this little Chemex lab right here. If I want to turn someone on to great coffee, the best thing I can do is invite them over for a cup of coffee. Uh I can sit and argue with them philosophically all day long. But the best thing to do is have them come over, watch me make it, smell it, drink it, enjoy it, and they'll associate it with our time that we had together. It's the same thing with music, it's the same thing with philosophy or religion or whatever. Religion and all that stuff, is, it's so rhetorical and it's it's so prone to argument. But when it becomes about relationship and shared experience, it's a lot harder for it to become combative. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know, I, I'm trying to get more about that and working here with college students and stuff, It's I have more opportunity to do that but then I still have to stay engaged and be thoughtful about how to do it on a slightly larger scale online because I you know I used to be able to talk to 100,000 people and that was great and I loved to be able to help put a band like the 77s on the map for a lot of people and I want to be able to do that again because there's younger artists that deserve a platform because their work is great but it's hard to get calcified old people to find new buttons to push to hear music. It's like so easy. It's so easy. If everybody listening to this would follow the playlist that I spend a couple hours every week curating on Spotify, if they would just click that button and listen, they would hear some old music and hear some new music. Every week they could just follow it. It would show up in there, you know, but, but it's like, I've been promoting it for two months and I've got 100 followers. You know, now I, there's probably a couple thousand people have listened to it, but I've only got a hundred people that right. have actually clicked to follow it. You know, so all they got to do is click a button and listen. It's super easy. It's never been easier. The good Lord's would, then they got hungry and had to be fed on only two little fishes and five loaves of bread. My brother um, and I are so different, but he was into, like, death, not, not what we now call death metal, but, like, the really occultic kind of, like, we're satanic, King Diamond kind oh, of metal. Yeah, yeah. Whatever would scare the crap out of my mom, yeah. basically. He, this was, like, when we were in high school or something. He really I don't know that he loved it. He liked it, but he also liked uh, all kinds of music. Right. But you like the know, shock value. I right? know that he loved whatever would scare my mom. That stuff, I not only would be opposed to it. Primarily, it was because I was opposed to it spiritually. So I would come up with all kinds of arguments about why it was musically inferior. Mm. But really, I was just offended by it because he was pushing my buttons as a mm. Christian. He, it was, it was, he was accomplishing everything. He was, he was winning every argument. <laughs> and a few years ago, I just, I'm probably more than a few years ago. You know, our relationship had basically as and when we were kids, I, we were so close in age. I was like a little more than a year older than him, but we were just so opposite that we were just estranged and then uh, hadn't really even seen each other other than a couple times a year at Family Stuff. And a fluke of flukes in a city area the size of Chicagoland, we end up coincidentally living 15 feet away from each other, my apartment and his apartment, having no idea my back door and his back door, 15 feet away from each other. It was the freakiest thing. We're standing looking out our kitchen windows at each other's faces going, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> wow! we are closer together now than when we lived at home, when I was in the basement and he was on the second floor. And so then we started to try to relate to each other as, like, independent adults living on our own, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember trying to go back and apologize for being a judgmental, mm-hmm. preachy, in-your-face Jesus freak to him. Yeah. And he just, he sat there, and, I, and even my apology was obnoxious. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And finally, after, after hearing me babble and babble, he's like, have you ever heard the phrase, don't sweat the small <laughs> <shit?"> <laughs> He's like, you need to live by that. Yeah. Like, and I thought, that's the Yoda saying of the day. Like, just sometimes I think that for some of us, when we think like exponentially, and we think eternally, I think that, at least for me, Mm -hmm. everything is connected to a thread that goes to eternity. Mm -hmm. And now, I've got a little bit more grace and maturity, I hope, at 48 years old. But when you're a teenager and you're thinking about heaven and hell and eternity all the time, Mm -hmm. (laughs) constantly, the stakes are just enormously high. So not sweating the little stuff isn't an option. You sweat everything. I sweat every single detail. Mm -hmm. And so for him to say that, like, our relationship is fine he's not worried about that stuff and now as adults every so often he's the one sending me like funny little he just sent me the other night a a text going somebody asked him who is the white person that you know that did the smoothest moonwalk (laughs) and they were thinking celebrities or something he's like my big brother john did the smoothest moonwalk and he's like I didn't even remember that. All so right. we have these memories that are that supersede the, the obnoxious stuff. The bread rivers in his body, the wine rivers in his blood. If your heart is right within, you can eat and drink it and love.
1: Well, we ran out of time, and I had a lot more questions to ask. So maybe we'll pick back up sometime in the future. In the meantime, you can visit John's website by going to JesusBreadChocolate.com. Or if you'd like to hear more of his mouth, John's a frequent guest back by the woodpile, most recently on episode 146, where he talks about gospel hip-hop from the early 1990s.
0: In the corner, back by the woodpile, it's produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by looking up Spun Counter Guy. If you want to say hi or send us nasty words, you can email us at guy at hotmail.com and you can find this podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and podbean.com we'll see you on the flip side this is the Lord's house everybody is welcome this is the Lord's house everybody is welcome come on in and take the bread alive